There we go. We're carrying on in our in our study through the Gospels, but more specifically, we're looking at the themes of the Gospels at this point. And today we're going to be in uh, Luke and uh, next week we will be in uh, Acts. I know Acts is in a Gospel, but as you will see today, they go hand in hand in many ways. Um, Matthew shows us Jesus's line through Abraham as Pastor Steve talked to us a a little while ago. Mark, the Gospel of Mark, shows us that Jesus comes from Nazareth. And John, the Gospel of John, shows us that Jesus came from heaven. Luke shows us that he came from man. Luke really highlights Jesus' humanity. Matthew, again, is all about the coming king. Mark is about the suffering servant. John is about the Holy One. And Luke is about the man, Jesus Christ. Matthew is about the coming Christ. Mark is about the serving Christ. John is about the deity of Christ. And Luke is about the humanity of Christ. All of these really give a full picture of who Jesus is and what he did on this earth. This week, uh, as I said, we're looking at the Gospel of Luke. Next week, we will look at the book of Acts because it's not definitive in the sense that we can pinpoint it, but the author of Luke is the same author as the book of Acts. It is believed that if you look at Luke chapter 1, verse 4, as well as Acts chapter 1, verse 1, it talks about a man named Theophilus. If you look with me in Luke chapter 1, it says, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had a perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. And then if you turn over with me to Acts chapter 1, that gives us the connection. Acts chapter 1 says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, and what he's referring to is he's actually referring to the Gospel of Luke. He says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. And then we'll pause there. All that to say that the author of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are connected. They are one in the same. And in reality, you could refer to as Acts as a sequel to the Gospel of Luke. If you also don't have to turn there, but if you're taking notes, write down Acts chapter 16, verse 10. Because in, as you go through and you read the Gospel of Luke and then you transition to the, the book of Acts, you, you read it as if you're reading someone who's recounting a bit of history or who is not necessarily familiar with the events, but as if he had been told the events and therefore he's making a record of them. But as you get to Acts 16, verse 10, something changes. The narrative changes and we begin to have what's referred to as we statements, not we as in their fun, but we as in they are now speaking in the first person which could be a bit fun depending on who you are. But all that to say, 
the author of the book of Acts is now traveling with Paul. And so he's going from location to location. And so now he's no longer speaking of the events as if he heard them from somebody else. He's speaking as if he is one or that he is one who is seeing these events. Therefore, it is believed that the author of Luke and Acts is none other than Luke, who is mentioned in the book of Colossians chapter 4. So, as I said, it's not necessarily definitive, but church history as well as internal evidence seems to point in that direction. Don't, don't, um, don't get too worried. We're not going to get bogged down with the details, so don't get glazed over eyes quite yet. As much as I like to stay in the details, we won't stay there. But who is Luke? If he's the author of both of these books, who is this man? Luke is actually only mentioned three times in the New Testament. He's mentioned in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, Philemon, chap, uh, verse 24, there's only one chapter, verse 24, and 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. And with this, we can deduce or see a little bit of information about this man, Luke. First off, in Colossians, it tells us that he's a doctor or a physician. Paul is writing and he refers to him as a beloved physician. That word there, physician, it simply means someone who can help heal or minister to someone in the physical sense. He, and we also see from the book of Luke as well as the book of Acts, he uses medical terminology in Luke chapter 4, verse 35, chapter 9, verse 38. An interesting one is the parable of the camel going through the eye of the needle. Matthew and Mark, when they refer to the eye of the needle, they refer to just a simple sewing needle, a household needle, one that you would, you know, sew your, your buttons back on for your shirt. But Luke, in Luke chapter 18, verse 25, he uses the word for a surgical needle, not one that you would use to put your buttons on your shirt, but one that you would use to uh, mend scars. Or as my sister experienced this week, she cut her hand and had to have quite a few stitches. So it's a little bit of a different nuance, a different insight that Luke gives us. All that to say, he's a physician. We also see that he's, as mentioned, a traveling companion of Paul. Towards the end of the book of Acts, we see there's more and more of these we statements, these statements indicating he's traveling with Paul. And we even see in 2 Timothy that he's with Paul or will be with Paul um, at his last point of contact or when he is imprisoned at that last end of Paul's life. We also see from Colossians chapter 4, verse 11, there's a list of Jews that are mentioned there. But then chapter, or sorry, verse 12 makes a list of uh, Gentiles that are with Paul. And Luke is in that list of Gentiles, which seems to indicate that he is a Gentile. Which is interesting because that would make him the only author of the New Testament who is a Gentile. Which also, as one commentator puts it, Luke's gospel is the longest of the four gospels. And if you take Acts and you add that together, there is more written by Luke than any other author in the New Testament. And yet he's a Gentile. Quite an interesting bit of insight. Now, as much fun as it would be to do a character study, that is not the scope of this series or the scope of this morning. We are looking at the theme of the book of Luke. So... What is the theme? 
If you turn with me again to Luke chapter 1, Luke actually tells us what the theme or the purpose of the book is. We've read it already. We'll read it one more time. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word deliver them to us. So basically what Luke says is, hey, there's a, quite a few other gospel narratives or stories about Jesus that are out there already. There's quite a few that are going around. They are good and right in and of themselves. But then he says in verse 3, It seemed good to me also, having a perfect understanding, or a better word would be a, a full understanding or a mature understanding, of all things from the very first to write to you an orderly account. And so what Luke is saying is he's telling this man, Theophilus, of, hey, there's a couple of other accounts out there already. There are some other stories or narratives of the gospel of Jesus. But what I want to do is I want to look at setting out an orderly account of what Jesus has done. That you may know the certainty, as verse 4 says, of those things in which you were instructed. Now, we might want to get carried away with who is Theophilus, but that is, again, not the scope of what this morning is. The scope is, what is this account? And bearing, <clears throat> and it, I think it has to deal specifically with this orderly account that he refers to. But I think it's bigger than just a simple Okay, let's have chronological order of when Jesus was born, when he went to the temple with his parents and got lost for three days, when did he start his ministry? It's bigger than that. I think what Luke is trying to give here is an orderly account of really who Jesus was and what Jesus did. Look again at Acts chapter 1. I promise this will be the last time I make you do a bunch of flipping back and forth. But I do have to admit, I like hearing pages turn. Acts chapter 1 says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of that Jesus began both to do and to teach. So again, I believe he's summarizing the whole purpose of this gospel. And he's explaining what Jesus did and what Jesus taught. Again, a summary of who Jesus was and what he was about. Bearing that in mind, I believe Jesus was about saving the lost. And that is what I believe his focus, his, his goal really is with the Gospel of Luke. Coming for, or Jesus is coming for, and helping those who did not know God or did not know they needed God. They didn't know they were lost. So if you'll turn with me the last time, Luke chapter 15. I said last time too many times, didn't I? Luke chapter 15 is a series of three parables. This has been called the gospel within the gospel. And really, it's, a, it's an understanding of the heart of Jesus for the lost. It's an understanding, I believe, of the heart of God as well. But actually, let's pick up in verse, in chapter 14, verse 34. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out 
He who has ears, let him hear. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying. So I read part of chapter 14 because that gives us a bit of context for chapter 15. Because as I said, chapter 15 is three parables that he speaks to those that are there. But really, he's picking up from where he left off or where they left off in chapter 14. They were at a, at a party, at a, at a celebration, and, peop- and Jesus started talking to people about how they were acting or not acting. He was encouraging them to humble themselves, otherwise they will be humble. The whole idea of don't sit at the best place So that the guy who is running the party doesn't make you move to the worst place. And so Jesus was giving those instructions. And he even says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his mother or father or children or wife, he cannot be my disciple. And really what he's getting at is he's saying, count the cost of what it means to follow me. He's saying, look at what it's going to cost you in order to follow me. It will cost you all of these things. But the last thing that he says in, verse four, in chapter 14 is, he who has an ear, let him hear. Jesus is wanting people to listen, to wake up, to stop going with the status quo and realize it's going to cost them something. Therefore, let us hear what he has to say. And so he jumps into chapter 15 and the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the whole point, I believe, of what Luke is getting at is he's saying those that actually were listening, those that had ears that were turned on were the sinners and the tax collectors. It would seem that they were the ones who actually were paying attention rather than the religious rulers. These are the ones who knew they needed to follow Jesus. They knew they needed help. They may not have understood that what kind of help they needed. They just knew they needed help. It's a bit like this last week. We read the Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 3, verse 5, and saying, lean not on your own understanding, but trust in the Lord in all your ways. And what's interesting, a number of times this week, that verse had come up or I had been reminded of that verse multiple times. It started, well, it started right after we read that verse. But one of the first times it happened was, um, Tuesday night, I was getting ready for work and I was pulling the groceries out and all of a sudden, because I was loading the groceries in the truck and, and then I had them too tall and all of a sudden I was like, man, why is this really, really difficult to move? I'm, I'm not that weak. What is going on? And then I realized something's not right. Something's not balanced. And I turn around and a whole crate of milk just falls. And so 10 liters of milk were all over the countdown floor. And I just thought, are you kidding me? I've got a big run today. And I thought, okay, this is the Lord telling me to slow down because this week is going to be a big week. And sure enough, after I cleaned up the mess, after I got the stuff put away and and go and re-pick the new orders because their orders were all mucked up and everything, got all that sorted, got on my run, got back home in time in a different, in a a relatively easy, uh, good time. Um, Wednesday, I had a meeting with the, with the school principal and we were sitting down talking about uh, some things for the school because I'm on the board and we're, we're discussing some good stuff. And just as we get into it, 
Um, somebody comes into the, the principal's office and says, hey, there's something not right with one of the teachers. He's having a bit of a health issue. We end up calling the ambulance. He gets taken to the Waikato Hospital. And we, I ended up going and meeting there with his wife and then got home, again, not at a, at a late night. And then for, yes, on Friday, had a couple of back-to-back meetings with some pastor friends of mine up in Auckland. It was, it was, they were good meetings, but they were heavy meetings and they were interesting meetings. And, and, then, and it was just one thing after another that this week was building up and it was the Lord telling me, slow down, slow down. Do, am I having ears to hear what God has to say? That I may not be lost in the sense of, uh, of, the, of, of the extremities of these sinners and tax collectors that are described here, but I was on a trajectory of getting lost with throwing the milk down, not necessarily being available to help when the teacher was sick, not being able to, to go and help and, and minister to people in Auckland. But did I have my ears on? Did I have them? Was I ready and willing to listen? But then notice the thing that I find interesting is who else is mentioned in this passage. Notice he says in verse two, and the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them. The Pharisees and scribes were the religious elites of the day. The Pharisees were a relatively small group of Jews who upheld the law to the strictest standards. The scribes were usually the ones who were interpreting the laws. And so they were a bit like the lawyers of the day within the religious world. And they were the ones complaining and not happy with what Jesus was doing. And I find that sad and, and yet interesting all at the same time because they, they saw Jesus and they said they were, that he was receiving sinners and tax collectors. The word they receive means to accept or to favorably accept and allow and have hospitality towards. And, and what I find interesting is, yes, Jesus was accepting them. He was accepting the, the harlots the tax collectors, the sinners, the social outcasts. I wonder who the social outcasts are in our world that Jesus would be accepting today. But I think the Pharisees had a misunderstanding, one that I know I have at times. I think what the, what the Pharisees and scribes were thinking is that by receiving these people, by receiving these social outcasts, Jesus was condoning their behavior. We know that wasn't what Jesus was doing. He was receiving them so that he could minister to them, so that he could speak the truth and the message of hope to them. He wasn't condoning their behavior. If anything, he was setting an example so that they could follow him to live a different life. So by accepting them, he wasn't condoning them. And I wonder if we get that balance wrong at times as well. That they believed he was condoning their behavior when he was simply accepting them for who they were and showing them a better way. Jesus was allowing them to come to him as they were, not worried about the outward appearance, but worried about their inward heart so that he could show them they needed to change. He again said, he who has an ear, let him hear. Meaning those who want to change, they may not know how, they may not know why, but they need it and they see that, therefore they come. I believe this goes hand in hand with what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 to 30. He says, come to me, 
All who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And sometimes I read that verse and I think of more in the sense of, am I too busy? Am I too, do I have too much going on in my life? Am I pulling too much weight and letting all the milk just fall on the floor? Is that what's going on? And yes, there's a validity to that. But there's also an element of come who, how we are with who we are because he has a better way. His way is gentle and lowly. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. And sometimes we may think Jesus is talking about, again, being busy. But I think he's also talking about the weight of sin, the weight of guilt, the weight of not meeting those standards. And he says, my son has already met those standards. Now, before we get into these parables, I want to take a moment and and make a mention of something. Really, I want to make mention of a couple of things. When I look at parables, there's two things that I bear in mind. The first thing is usually, not always, but usually when we come to a parable, there's one simple truth. And that's it. You read the parable and there's one simple truth that the author is trying to convey. There might be different aspects of that truth or there might be different perspectives of that truth. But there is usually one truth that the author is trying to convey. The second thing is that typically, and again, not always, these are general statements, but typically the simplest interpretation is the best interpretation. And that's what the author is typically trying to convey. There might be deeper and more significant, or or sorry, not significant, but deeper, more interesting insights or interpretations. But usually the focus or the main point of the parable is one simple truth and one one simple interpretation. One commentator put it this way, the simplest interpretation is likely to be the true one for the very nature of a parable is to explain and reveal truth, not to hinder it. So as we go through these these parables, bear with me because I'm not going to go into the, the depths and the nuances and let's face it, I'm not Chuck Missler and that's okay. We won't dive into the nitty gritties which there's a time and a place, but not for this morning. The other thing I want to point out here is that really this morning, I'm looking at God's heart. That as we're talking about the lost, and as we're talking about, we're looking at Jesus having a heart for the lost, we're describing his heart. And we're describing God's heart. Now, I don't want that to be a a, a cop-out I want it to be a warning because there might be a couple of words that I might use that cause you to perk up, cause you to think, what is this guy talking about? And I hope it does because that one means you're listening. But two, it means that sometimes words aren't always easy to use or they're difficult to describe an undescribable God, if that makes sense. I want us to bear that in mind and that as we go through, I may use a word or two that might not match 100% with what you're thinking. But I hope you understand my heart and using these words. And of course, if you need clarity or I say something that is not 
what you think it should be, please always feel free to go and ask someone else. Um, but I'm kidding. You can come and talk to me or email me and we can discuss that later. So with that, enough, uh, enough preface, enough background. Let's dive into verse 3. I was, hopefully I was joking. You know that. You can come and talk to me and we'll talk about it. But verse 3 says, So he spoke the, this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Now, As I said, this chapter is called the gospel within the gospel. It explains or rather elaborates what it means to be or good news. But I find this interesting because Luke starts this verse off by saying he spoke this parable. Indicating that he may have only mentioned one. Now, I think he intended it to be three parables, but all three highlighting a similar truth, the heart of God. They're all connected, and I think one is actually building on top of the other. That without the story of the lost sheep, we wouldn't get the intentionality of the heart of God for the lost. Without the story of the lost coin, we wouldn't see the intensity of the heart of God for the lost. And without the story of the lost son, we wouldn't get the depth of knowledge of the heart of God for the lost. So each one is building upon another. But this first parable about the sheep, to me, it's a bit backwards. It's a bit different. I wouldn't leave my 99 sheep in the wilderness First of all, I wouldn't have sheep because I'm not really a very good shepherd. But that word there for wilderness, it means wilderness. It means barren place. And many of us have studied and we understand the concept of how they shepherd back then. They didn't have paddocks. They didn't have fences. It was a shepherd watching his sheep and living in and amongst his sheep. And Maybe there were other shepherds around. Maybe there were other flocks around. Maybe there was some sort of protection. We aren't told. What we are told in this parable is this man had 100 sheep. One of them is missing. And he leaves the 99 in the wilderness. To me, that sounds a bit reckless. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not calling God reckless. I'm saying simply in this story, this man, in my understanding... It's a bit reckless. Why would you leave your 99 to go and search for one? Again, I would maybe be tempted to say, I've got 99. Some of them are going to have babies. I'll have 100 again. We'll let the one go. It's not that big of a deal. Or I would go home, put the 99 in their 99 cages, and then go and find the one so that way I could go and get them and the 99 don't wander off. But again, that's human reasoning. Or Jake reasoning, which is flawed as we've seen. But I think that's the truth. The one truth of this parable that is important. God's heart is not just for the 99. It's for the one. God cares about the 99. Yes, 
but he cares for the one. He is willing to leave the 99 unattended for a time so that he can find the one. Notice what Jesus said in verse 7. There is more joy in heaven over one person repenting than 99 with no repentance. That shows me that God cares about the one. The intentionality of God's heart for the lost. He is more interested in you than you realize And he's more interested in me than I realize. But also remember how he started this parable off in verse 4 by pointing out to the crowd, or more specifically to the Pharisees and scribes, what would you do if you were in this man's shoes? The question is rhetorical in the sense that every logical conclusion that a man would come to is he would do the exact same thing. That, yeah, I'm missing a sheep. These ones are protected for the time being. I'm going to go and find that one. He says, wouldn't you do this? Wouldn't you go searching for the one and rejoice once you found it? But then he makes a connection. If you would do that for a sheep, how much more do you think God does that for a person? Jesus is calling the religious rulers out and he's saying, look, if we are willing to do that for a sheep, shouldn't we do that for men and women? God does it, shouldn't we? The intentionality of the heart of God. He cares about the one. Verse 8, we come to the second parable. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp? Sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This woman is searching for a lost coin. Again, to me, this is a bit of an unusual story. The coin is believed to be worth about a day's wage at that point in time. So if we look at the minimum wage of New Zealand before taxes, that's close to 200 New Zealand dollars. Now, it's not a large amount of money, but it's not a small amount of money either. You think if you had $200 bills floating around your house somewhere, you would be wanting to pick them up as well. At least I would be. So if you are not worried about it, let me come over and I'll find them. (laughs) But notice the intensity of this woman. Notice her searching She lights a lamp. She sweeps the floor. She searches high and low for one coin. Again, I believe that's the one truth of this parable. It is the relentless pursuit of this woman to find her coin. She is relentless in pulling her house apart so that she could find the one coin. And I believe that is God's heart. For us, he is in some ways relentless in pursuing us. Again, notice she lights a candle. She sweeps the floor. But then once she finds this, she rejoices. She rejoices with her neighbors saying, I have found my coin. Again, I find this interesting because I wasn't, I, I, I wouldn't be rejoicing. I'd be a bit embarrassed. I lost $200 and why would I go rejoicing over it? 
I lost my sheep. Why would I be rejoicing over finding it? But again, that's not necessarily an indication of what's happening. God is more excited about someone repenting and coming to him than he is about those who don't need to repent. Again, the focus is not so much about something being someone losing something, but so much as them finding the Lord and the Lord rejoicing over that repentance. So the first one, we see the first parable is about the intensity of the heart of God, or rather the, the, the intentionality, sorry, the, the, the fact that he loves one, even though he's got 99 others. Whereas the second parable is about the intensity, the searching, the relentlessness of God pursuing the heart of man, wanting us to come to him. And then we come to the famous parable of the lost son. Verse 11, or shall we say the prodigal son. Verse 11, it says, and then he said, a certain man had two sons. Uh, The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when, when he had spent all there arose a severe famine in that land and he began to be in want then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and he sent into his sent him into his fields to feed swine and he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that had that the swine ate and no one gave him anything but when he came to himself he said how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare and i perish with hunger i will arise and go to my father and i will say to him father I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. Now the older, his older son was in the field and he, as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But, his, but he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might be mar- I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as the son of yours came who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all I have is yours. It is right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. 
Here we have the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. In this chapter, there is a father and two sons. The older son is faithful and committed to the work. He, he is de- dedicated to doing his father's will or dedicated to committing the work of the farm and being faithful at it. The younger son, to put it politely, is not committed at all. The younger son thought his life, for whatever reason, would be better if he leaves and goes somewhere else, somewhere far away from his family. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 21 verse 15 describes the, the, how the inheritance was divided up amongst the siblings and how there was a double portion that was supposed to be given to the firstborn son. And so since this is the younger son who is asking for his inheritance, he would be given one third of the inheritance and the older son would be given two thirds of the inheritance, provided there are the only two children. But either way, this second son asks his father, give me my inheritance or give me my my portion. Now, irrespective of cultural nuances and the difference of time, there is disrespect here. And I think we can all see that in the plain light of the text. The inheritance was usually not given until the father had passed away. So this, in, a, in a sense, by the son asking for his inheritance now, he's in a way saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my money now. In a way, he's highlighting that he is focused more about his, the money than he is about his relationship with his father or his family. So we're not told how the conversation went. We're simply told that the dad does that. He liquidates his assets. He gives his son his portion of inheritance. And so the son leaves for a faraway country and enjoys the life that his money has bought him. <clears throat> Until there's a famine. We see that he has no money left. He's blown it all on on however he wanted to live. And now he tries to work. The only work that he can find is taking care of pigs. Now, the fact that Jesus is speaking to a lot of to Hebrews, that would have been an unclean job for the Hebrews. Because you remember, pigs are unclean. So this probably would have had an audible gasp in the room. He's working with pigs. But as if that wasn't enough, he was so hungry and he was making not enough money to even buy him some food. He was going wanting to eat the food that the pigs had. But then he remembers his father's servants. I like the way that it says here and in verse 17. But when he came to himself, almost as if when he finally woke up and realized How good he had it at home. But the son then begins to make a plan. He begins to want to work or rather return home and ask his father for forgiveness and ask to be a worker. Now, excuse me, in a way, or rather the truth is, this is leading to, I believe, a repentance or the man repenting in front of his father. Many have questioned the integrity of this man's repentance. They question, is it true? Is it, does it, does it just hold up till he gets home? Is it whatever it might be? The fact is we're not given any information other than what we have here in the text. And based on that, I would venture to say it is a genuine repentance. 
Because also notice what the father does. He receives him and he not only restores him to the household, he restores him to the position of son. But either way, we see his intent was to return, to ask for forgiveness and to be a simple worker in the family. He was not looking to be restored at the position of son. He knew he had blown that opportunity. And so he goes home. It's interesting, and and we've seen pictures and things, and I wonder how did the father notice his son from afar off? But then I started thinking about that the other day, and I started thinking how sometimes in the grocery store, you might be walking down an aisle, and as you pass one aisle, you see somebody else pass another aisle, and you think, was that somebody that I knew? And then you go down the aisle, and you find out it was the person that you thought it was. That's probably how the father was. He stood up and saw the son at a distance and he recognized his gait or he recognized his, his, his stature or whatever it might be. He recognized his son. And as many have pointed out, he ran. He set aside his dignity to run. <clears throat> Even today, I think many of us with kids, regardless of what the situation is, if they are in need or are wanting to return, we would run to them. And I find how much the Father runs to us, that God the Father comes to us. But the Father in this story calls the servants to restore the son a robe, a ring, a sandal, all, or both sandals, not just one, all things indicating that he is now a son, not just a servant. And in many ways, the other two parables stop here. Whereas this parable gives us the detail, I believe, that of Jesus's heart for the lost. And we're at verse 25, we're introduced to, the, to the, the firstborn son. He comes onto the scene a bit bewildered and confused. He's been working out in the field, doing that which he had been doing for years. And now he hears party noise, celebration, a lot of commotion going on. <clears throat> so he asks, what is happening? Someone tells him, your brother has returned. Those are probably words he didn't want to hear. Those are probably things that he wasn't enjoyed or enthusiastic about. Then he goes and he starts thinking about it. And he starts thinking, well, how did we pay for this? It's from my, my inheritance. My inheritance is paying for the party of my lost brother who has returned. But notice what the father does. The father comes and he speaks to his son. And again, I can't help but notice how this is another sign of the father setting aside his dignity or position of honor as father coming to his son. Because he comes to his son where he is at in the situation that he is in. He doesn't require the son to come to him. How often does the Bible describe the Lord comes to us? The invitation for us to come to Jesus, yes, is there. And yes, we need to come to him. But it is only after he has sent his son to the earth for us. I encourage you to do a a, a word study or a phrase study on two words in the Bible, but God. It indicates when God has come to us or he has interjected himself into the situation because of unfavorable circumstances. 
One of my favorites is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. But God, who is rich in mercy. But we see here in this context, the Father comes. The Son begins to explain his anger, his frustration. He sees, or sorry, he says, I've done nothing wrong. I have done everything you've asked me to, and yet you've never once given me a lamb to have an enjoyment or a party with my friends. What's up with that, Dad? Why do you do that? The father responds. And he simply says, we couldn't do anything other than throw a party. He says he was dead and now he's alive. We couldn't do anything but rejoice. The father says, yes, you're right. You've done nothing wrong or nothing that warrants anger or frustration, but your brother was dead and now he's alive. We have to celebrate. What's the main point of this parable? Parable of the lost sheep. God cares for the one. Parable of the lost coin. God's relentless pursuit for us. The parable of the lost son, I believe, is about God's desire as a whole for the lost. That in a way, that is a theme of all three, but certainly it is the highlight and the pinnacle of this third parable. In this parable, the dad is God the father. And the second born son is each and every one of us that has been lost. I want to ask the worship team to come up and we'll begin to wind down. But the second born son is each and every one of us who is needed to repent It is all who have repented and realized that we need Jesus. But the interesting thing is that the firstborn son could be or is the Pharisees and scribes mentioned earlier in this chapter. Those who do not think that they need to repent, but who actually need to repent. Those who judge and lack or or look for from the inside thinking that they are secure when in reality they need Jesus just as much as each and every one of us. So this morning as we close, I want us to think about and ponder the heart of God. God cares about the one. The one isn't just the one that is next to you. The one is you. He cares about you. God is relentless, though, in his desire and his pursuit for you. And his desire is for those that are lost. His son, as Luke points out, was born a man. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7 says, Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. He then lived as a man, died as a man, but all of that so that a man can be saved by him. Each and every time we repent, heaven rejoices. There is a party in heaven for us. Maybe we're lost because we had a rough week. We dropped a bunch of milk. We did whatever. We had a bad day. But when we repent, there's rejoicing in heaven. Maybe we're lost because we don't know the Lord at all. There's joy in heaven when you repent today. Whether we've never trusted in God or we've trusted in him our entire lives, every time we repent, he rejoices in heaven. Lord, I thank you for this day. 
I thank you that you rejoice in heaven over our repentance. Lord, I thank you that it is not because of anything that we have done. It's not because of our work. It's not because of anything, but it is because of the work that your son did on the cross for us. That he came in the form of a babe, lived amongst us, but then died on the cross for us. And he rose three days later. Father, I pray that we accept that, that we want that, that we ask you into our hearts for that. So that we can continue to rejoice with you in the new heaven and new earth. Father, we thank you and we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Let us stand and worship the Lord.